Welcome to the Critical Media Studies Podcast. We're your hosts, Mike Rapici and Barry Falk. Hi, Michael. How are you doing today? Barry, I'm good. Thank you. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. Uh, we have a little, I have a little bit of jitters because our task today is to talk about a challenging essay um, by Jean Baudrillard from the early 80s called The Masses in this translation. I've seen it translated differently, but in our translation, it's, um, it is entitled The Masses, The Implosion of the Social in the Media. Uh, this is an essay by Jean Baudrillard, um, and a lot of interesting things going on. And we decided to focus on a kind of a to do a micro read of one particular one particularly interesting, uh, spectacular argument, one particularly explosive bomb that he drops at the end of the essay. Um, so a lot of things going on here, but what we, Michael and I, this is right, Michael, we basically decided to talk about how Baudrillard conceives of the relation between the masses and the media and his paradoxical idea, his paradoxical argument that what looks like subservience or subjugation, what looks like uh, that all, or rather I'll put it another way, although it looks like Baudrillard argues, although it looks like the media subjugates, it's, it captures and in some ways subordinates its audience. In, actual, in actuality, according to Baudrillard, the masses exert or exist uh, in a curious kind of freedom in their relationship to the media. Uh, to I, as I mentioned, we don't want to talk about the essay in depth, but in order to impact that idea, that what looks like a subservient relationship, in fact, contains an element of curious freedom. Um, I probably have to make, I probably have to summarize, Michael, is this right? I have to summarize the argue, his argument about the beginning, Baudrillard's opening argument about uh, the function of opinion polls and statistics. I think, yeah, I think that's helpful in terms of making sense of what we're going to do. So if you want to gloss that real quick, we can, we can then jump. Okay. In. Real quick. And you'll help me with it that he uses the example of opinion polls and he, he, his, his, again, I guess he starts the paradoxical arguments early and often as Jean Baudrillard. So a lot of paradoxical or seemingly contradictory arguments Rather than thinking of, so that my, my summary would be this, that he's saying, we typically think, this is another example of a conventional way of, of conceiving the relationship between media and its audience, the audience for media in a, in a paradoxical, contradictory way. So rather than think, we typically, Baudrillard assumes, we typically think of statistics as providing us information about a social event or about the state of society. Uh, that, and, and that's precisely the idea that Baudrillard wants to attack. He doesn't believe that statistics provide information. They supplement, according to Baudrillard, uh, they, not, did I say they supplement? They function as a supplement that eventually replaces information and dialogue. So in other words, once you have statistics, this, 
What's the ideal speech situation? The media presents statistics in order to engage in a dialogue with the masses and persuade them and convince them about the reality of a particular social fact or event. And Baudrillard says, this is a misunderstanding of statistics. Statistics have the function of silencing the debate because what really happens when statistical information or opinion polls are presented is that they break the dialogue, they efface the dialogue that might exist between um, the, the media audience and, and the media itself. They basically substitute for it. They, they, you know, what happens is this is presented as the truth and you don't have to have an opinion on it because we told you what your opinion right. is. Right. In, in a sense, I, I think what he's arguing is that the rhetorical impact of statistics is That's going to much is Much going to yeah. either silence you into a minority that is unrepresented publicly, or it's going to place you so firmly in the majority that in either event, your input is unnecessary. It is, it is going to tell you where to be and uh, in orienting you in that way, render your voice unnecessary. And in, I guess in many ways, probably inarticulate. So um that is beautifully said, and that's an important argument that, that sets the stage for the argument we're going to try to unpack. It so does. Thank you for that. Yeah, and I think one of the things that, that's interesting about the argument that Baudrillard makes is that they are a series of contradictions. So um, as you said, right, his thesis that we're going to play with is that um, what looks like subservience or manipulation on behalf of the media actually provides a freedom for the mass. And so what we're going to look at are three other contradictions that uh, function in support of that thesis. And so uh, in a very specific order, uh, the first contradiction is that he argues that what we really want, what the masses really want is to be told what to want, right? That, that we need to be told that our deepest desires are to be told what our deepest desires are. Uh, his second contradiction or uh, is, is basically his argument is that uh, choice, if we, the masses, have choice, the inevitable end there is despair, right? That we're not ever going to be happy being able to choose. And his third contradiction is that rather than being able to make our choices, we need someone or something to make those choices for us. So really the, the, the focus of his argument as we're looking at it is really in relation to the concept of choice. You know, we, we exist with this idea that choice is good, choice is important, choice is sort of our right. And he, he's saying it, we, we can't, we don't want to even if we could. And uh, in the event that we could, we would still need someone else to tell us what our choices are. So uh, to jump in, I'm going to read a short section, and I will do my best to read it slowly and clearly so that we can follow along. But this is the first point that we really, our desire is to be told what our desires are. And so he says, we might argue that there exists another philosophy of lack of will, a sort of radical anti-metaphysics whose secret is that the masses are deeply aware that they do not have to make a decision about themselves and the world that they do not have to wish, that they do not have to know, and that they do not have to desire. The deepest desire is perhaps to give the responsibility for one's desire to someone else. 
And so as I read that, I, I don't know that he's saying we don't have to have desire because we do have desire. But what he's saying is that our desire is ultimately to be not responsible for our desires. What he's exactly. And, you know, it strikes me, Michael, that maybe the best way to explain or contextualize what's going on in the passage you read is to try and uh, is for us to describe the position that he opens up the essay with that he, the argument that he's trying to counter in this essay. And so I'm going to try to describe briefly the argument that Baudrillard wants to displace with this particular argument that we're trying to impact now. So what's the argument that he's trying to replace? Put simply, it's a Marxist argument that says that media is in the hands of capitalist forces. Um, capitalist forces, uh, our capitalist overlords, dictate the agenda of media. And the relation of media audiences is that they passively, they're passive subjects. They absorb the ideas that they're told to, that the, mass, the masses absorb. And that, again, it's important to note that the masses are everyone who's in the media environment for Baudrillard. He's not saying that you know we're outside of this or that he as a critic is outside of this. But anyway, the, the standard Marxist understanding of media, the progressivist idea of media is that media is owned by its owners, by the, you know, by, and is, um, yeah, it's basically hijacked or taken over or appropriated by the capitalist system. The capitalist system uh, uses the media to broadcast messages um, that are conducive to the functioning of capitalist society. And so the audiences in this particular case, they're, they're subject to the messages provided by the media, which are in fact dictated by the owners of the media. So there's this, so that's a model of almost complete subjection and subjugation. So against that, there was a period where um, Baudrillard was a Marxist, but this is in, written in the early 80s as, as Baudrillard is moving away from the Marxist critique of media in order to think about the media as it's doing its own autonomous thing. And so one of the reasons, so he's moving away from this position and I think he describes it well and he assumes it because it's a position about media that he wants help. But he, and he mentions this media and he gives uh, Hans Magnus Enzenberger as a sort of spokesperson for this example. We talked about Raymond Williams and obviously Raymond Williams had a, a kind of a version of, uh, I mean, it's the idea that I just summarized, uh, the argument that Baudrillard is going to counter, we encountered in Williams' our articles on media and beginning in culture and society, arguments about media beginning in culture and society. So uh, Baudrillard assumes that is a very, is a dominant position on media that holds that media subjects are subjugated to the media system and the media system itself is enthralled capitalism. And what he's doing here, what we're talking about is we're trying to think through his alternative position. So, yeah. yeah so I think what, what's interesting 
about this is that it's not that the masses aren't participants, right? Exactly. Like if, if we go back right. to the initial point about the opinion polls, right? Mm -hmm. Those polls don't exist without input from the mass. What's problematic is that, you know, you don't get to see how the soup is made. You, you, you get your voice, but you, you know, there's, there's sort of a, a murkiness behind in terms of what it is. So the argument is never made that the opinion poll is necessarily accurate or representative. It's simply a polling. And so what happens is we get to participate in these and then we're told exactly what it is that we allegedly say and we place ourselves in that. One of the things that I think is interesting is I'm reading through this and you know you get to the last line that I read where he says the deepest desire is perhaps to give responsibility for one's desire to someone else. The current analog for this, right? This is written in 1985. So we are in 2022. I was thinking about an Instagram feed and I was recently, uh, my wife and I were sitting down um, sort of, I don't know, we were like watching a basketball game and sort of, you know, ha half, half attending to the game, half sort of playing with a phone. And I had gotten, I was looking through Instagram and I got something that, I have absolutely no, you know, a good percentage of these feeds are determined by stuff that you're interested in and that you do. I had gotten something on there that was a bit of an outlier that I thought was kind of funny. And I showed it to her and she's like, well, what the hell is this? Why are you seeing this? And my response, like, I have no idea. I didn't do that. Like, this doesn't jive with, you know, 90% of the rest of what I get. But isn't this funny? Isn't this weird? And so we talked about whatever it was, but at its core, it really sort of exemplifies this comment, right? I got something that I thought was funny that I did not have to take responsibility for, right? Well, mm. why is this on here? Why are you looking at this? I have no idea why it's here. I didn't put it here. I can't choose this, but isn't this great that it's here? And so it's so it's funny oh, because when when it comes up and it fits that model, oh, that's 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 really random and funny. And we know it's not random, right? But it's funny and it's pleasing and you're happy about it. But what's the opposite side of that look like? What happens when uh, our desire that we're handed, right? doesn't match the desire that we think we want. And I have to choose my words carefully here because I'm trying to stay in Baudrillard's mindset. Um, but the result there is that it basically becomes a part of the jet stream of information that just flies mm. past us that we are otherwise, uh, you know, um, enculturated to, or uh, that's not the right word, uh, habituated to just ignore, right? So we, we, we get what we think we want we don't but we don't have to be responsible for these things and there's sort of a just a delightfully i don't almost there's a delightful response to this like i get all the payoff and none of the cost that's if, interesting. So, if something comes my way that's great i've been given a desire and i don't have to own it and in the view of the public in the view of the mass if that desire is somehow deviant or exists outside it's not my fault like we have removed responsibility we have we have had we have not done this we have had our responsibility taken for us so we get 100 of the payoff 
with zero of the accountability. And so when he says, hey, this is our desire, my God, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want all the credit with none of the blame? Wow. Wow. You're, you're, uh, I, have, <laughs> I have a lot of feels and, and thoughts in response to that. Is it, I'm wondering, and, and here we're betraying our lack of technological uh, my, our la- or my lack of computing knowledge and, and of the algorithm. Is it the, is the algorithm, like in TikTok, I'm never, exp- I'm never surprised. I know exactly why I'm getting what I'm getting because that algorithm is scarily predictive. Is what you're talking about just the result, the epiph- you know, is it epiphenomenal to the fact that Instagram's algorithm isn't quite as perfect as somebody... As, as something like the insidious, the more insidious TikTok? So I think there's that possibility, but I think there's also the possibility that it's even more insidious hmm. because I've had, and I, there's been, I, there's been, I've read about this. I've seen it firsthand. Hmm. Um, you know, this is on a phone and a phone has a microphone and that microphone doesn't turn off. So it's entirely possible that, you know, Kat and I were talking about whatever it is we were talking about and then it simply took a couple seconds for the, you know, our, our media overlords to say, hmm, yes, you, you really want it. to be seeing this. And so, again, it. it comes as a surprise. And whether or not, like, I, I think that for our purposes today, though, that's an incredibly interesting and an and equally terrifying question. I think that in terms of Baudrillard and his, his argument here, what we're really seeing is, look, you are going to be happiest when you mm-hmm. can be told what you want and we'll get to this choice in a second right but when mm-hmm. you when you're when mm-hmm. you're given something mm-hmm. and you are free to indulge in it or else pass the buck and that is the absolute best of both worlds i mean this is this is you know let's just remove accountability i think it's right yeah and so so let's let's yeah. let shall we jump to number two well because let's linger just for one moment, sure, because sure. I, I think I think there's just one thing to sew up. I'm going to ask you to help me with this. Since we mentioned about statistics and you have gave a, a wonderful modern analog, maybe before we move on, let's let's tie together the passage you read with our with the example of statistics, for example. Help me answer this question. So one of the things you read was this. Was this the culminating? the culmination of the passage you read. The deepest desire is perhaps to give the responsibility for one's desire to someone else. Sure. Okay. Help me answer that in regard to his openings, Baudrillard's opening example of the About statistics. statistics. Yeah. How does, how does statistics, we talked about how statistics doesn't really give us in Baudrillard's view uh, you know, official objective information. That's not its function. So how does how does a, the statistics bit fit in? Why would it be the mass? Why would the masses desire to have putting this together? Baudrillard is saying, if the masses deepest desire is to give the responsibility for one's desire to someone else, how does statistical information or how does the opinion poll do that? Well, I, th- I, I think that statistics carry this air of infallibility. And so, again, we are going to be in one of two places. We're going to be in the majority 
in which case I'm validated because this is what everyone wants. That's great. Yeah. And remember, I was, I was, I was given this. I was told, right, that this right. Is, that my desire was handed to me, and my it desire is, to you. Is, is correct. It's so, outside of yourself. It's outside of yourself. The information right. and the presentations outside of yourself. Right. And so, and I think that the second position that we would theoretically find ourselves in is that of the minority, right? Uh, a statistical minority. Well. One of the points that he makes is that these statistics um, can be weaponized, right? So you can, A, use that minority to tap down a deviance that is not uh, acceptable mm -hmm. or, or publicly acceptable. Or B, you can simply reconfigure the statistics to create a majority out of a minority. I mean, essentially, this is um, you know misrepresentation. But statistically, I mean, if we if we believe in the purity of math— Right. And I say that sort of tongue firmly in cheek. Um, we, we can turn a minority into a majority and thereby we can uh, sort of legitimize. Um, how do I want to say it? We, we can legitimize. But, but, but the we in that case isn't is the media, not the masses. Yes, it seems I like the first, I'm sorry. It seems like the first part of your but the, the first part of your question, the first part of your answer really, I think, address this. Like you're saying that we desire to. Well, I, th I think that the bottom line is that, that, that being statistically represented, understanding that the media can always create a majority, right, um, ratifies any sort of behavior. And given the fact that we don't have to be responsible for our desires, yeah. um, we okay. can then – the media – I have to stop saying that. I'm sorry. The media can then create mm -hmm. a scenario – where anything is right or anything is wrong. And because it has control of your position, it can align you accordingly. So it, it, the, again, I think about the rhetorical impact of statistics, right? So the rhetorical impact, okay. I, I mean, you, you've described the ways though that media subjects us well, because I think it sort of does but I, but I think it's important to remember that when we speak of media, uh -huh. We are not speaking of a singular, mm -hmm. right? So um, I'll, you know, I'll invoke sort of our, our, our political landscape as represented in mm -hmm. uh, television mm -hmm. media, right? Mm -hmm. There is a flavor of television for everyone. And we can operate under the idea that these different media arms are legitimately trying to represent your viewpoint. Mm -hmm. I, my contention is that it's so many different forms of clickbait designed to keep you coming back. And so what we do is we create a, um, you know, noble majority who's trying to do the right thing for everybody, or mm -hmm. we create a noble minority, but that minority is sizable and you're a part of it and you're fighting for what's right. And so we can use statistics really to create uh, an impulse uh, or excuse me, um, uh, an, an impression of um, legitimization and sort of um, uh, right, regardless of where you stand. Mm -hmm. And if you are found out to be wrong later, it was never your fault. Okay. That's, I'm, that's, that's my, that's my take. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, let's, let, let's, let's go on. All right. So let's, so the second one we talk about is the idea that choice would lead to despair. Ultimately that if we could mm -hmm. choose, we would end up, uh, you know, despairing. All right. So he says, choice is a strange imperative. Any philosophy which assigns man to the exercise of his will 
can only plunge him in despair. For if not, <laughs> marinate. Sorry, on I'm moment. sorry. I'm All right. So, any philosophy which assigns man to the exercise of his will can only plunge him in despair. For if nothing is more flattering to consciousness than to know what it wants, nothing is more fascinating to that one than not to know what it wants, mm -hmm. to be relieved of choice and diverted from its own objective will. And so I see this as an extension of his previous yeah. argument right. Um, right. that really what we want is to not have to be we want to be relieved of choice and diverted from our will. Now, this, though, to me, adds a new flavor in the sense that we are conscious of our will. We just want to be told otherwise. And how do you how do you understand that? Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm relating this back to his earlier statement about a radical anti-metaphysic that he is, that Baudrillard is ascribing to the masses. And again, holding that idea that part of his purpose here is explaining part of Baudrillard's purpose here is arguing against the position that would say that masses are subjected by the media and therefore their desire is liberation. Their strongest desire is liberation because they're under subjection. According to the Marxists, that would be their reading of the media landscape. The media holds uh, its audiences hostage. And what do you want to be if you're a hostage? Your deepest desire is to be free. And Baudrillard is saying, no, 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 no. Our deepest desire is not to be free. Our, dis our deepest desire is to be free from the choice of making a choice. And in fact, that's, I, I tie that in with the second sentence you read. Any philosophy, which, is, which, which of course we perversely laughed at because it is kind of funny. Um, another philosophy which assigns man to the exercise of his will can only plunge him in despair. Why would that be? Because according to the anti-metaphysic, that radical anti-metaphysic that Baudrillard ascribes to the masses, the masses aren't about liberation. The Marxists would say, the progressive would say, the masses want nothing more. Their deepest desire is to be free of the media system that subjugates them. And he's saying, nah, not so fast. What's the deepest desire of the masses? And everybody is the mass. It's to have somebody make their choices for them, to be able to delegate the, to somebody else, in this case, media, the responsibility of making choices for me, that puts me in the position I most desire. That is the greatest freedom, to not have to make a choice at all. So that, I think, is what's going on in this. Um, I think what he's trying to describe in the passage you just read about choice being strange and that making a choice just depresses us. He's trying to describe what he, the limits of this anti-metaphysic that he like I said, he believes that this is the our deepest, the masses, therefore us, our deepest desire, which is not to be free from subjection, not to be liberated from the media, but to have the media do all our stuff for us. Does that mean it? 
what do you think? Was it well, comments I a, or, or yeah, no? I have a question about this. Is, yeah. is this, is this because ultimately choosing, see my, my, my take on this is, is, is a little, I'm a yeah, little let's hear less solid. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Choosing is work. Yeah. Right. Right. Like right. there was, there were, I don't know if you, if you're familiar with this or not, but there were a number of uh, articles written about, uh, you know, how to sort of in increase your, your ability to make good choices is to minimize the number of choices that you have to make throughout. Oh my gosh. That's right? so Baudrillard. So, so, so <laughs> there was, there was, there was something written about like, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, love him or hate him. War, wears the same outfit every day because it's one less choice he has to make, right? Like a large, apparently Obama had uh, a set suit, they had a very limited number of suits that he would wear because it was cho one choice he had to make less throughout the day. And if you can minimize the number of stupid choices you have to make, then you can maximize your ability to engage with. I know, I know choices. people who diet on that principle. They, right. they, they, they find the one thing they want to eat and they eat it repeatedly. Right. So on, on one hand, we can look at this and say, well, the desire to have your choices made for you to be relieved of choice mm -hmm. is that it relieves you of a burden, right? Mm -hmm. And that we want ultimately ease. But I also wonder if implicit in this isn't the uh, idea that if we choose, there's the likelihood that we mm. will make the wrong choice, that we will end up mm. on the wrong side of a statistical determination. Hmm. Um, and that what we're really looking for here hmm. is certainty, is good news. If we take this in line or in light of his previous point, right? Hmm. That um, we want to be told what to like, right? That, hmm. that, our, that our desire is, is to be handed to us. Um, then what we really want is to recognize perhaps that those desires are good desires. And I think this brings us back to his statistical argument earlier that what we really want is to find out that the choices that we don't have to make and the desires that were handed to us are good choices and noble desires that align us with the popular will as it is handed to us. Mm. And so I think that you know, this is, I, I wonder if this isn't sort of the manifestation of some sort of peer pressure that mm -hmm. ultimately is beyond us, but at the same time, we really hope it works out. And that in terms of getting it to work out, we want these things given to us because I don't have to have responsibility for it. I don't have to account for my will. All right. So to sort of, to try and synthesize where we are so we can move forward and not have this take forever. Um, his Baudrillard's first argument again was that what we want is to be told what we want, right? His second argument is that choice is a problem. Now we can't not make choices. So what I think if we put these two arguments together, what we end up with is I want to be told what I want and I want the choices that get made. I want those choices to line up with what I want. And I want to know that my choice, which was essentially handed to me or made obvious, lines up with my desire, which is socially sanctioned, so I can end up being on the right side of things and feeling good about where I am.
So we have what we want. We have what we choose, which brings us to his third point or our third point of his, which is that we need someone or something to make these choices for us. That's our ideal situation. Our ideal, what we most desire is for somebody to make the choices for us. Right. So uh, he says, this is point number three. It is much better to rely on some insignificant or powerful instance than to be dependent on one's own will or necessity of choice. Bo Brummel had a servant for that purpose. Before a splendid landscape dotted with beautiful lakes, he turned to his valet to ask him, which lake do I prefer? So we, we, we see here again, what do I want? What are the options? And then who's going to make those options or who's going to make those choices of the available options for me? And so I don't know, Barry, perhaps you'd like to uh, explicate Bo Bremel for us for a moment so that we can uh, play Bo this Bremel, out. Bo Bremel was uh, one of the first dandies and a dandy was a, a 19th century phenomenon of aristocrats who um, when, uh, you know, basically caused spectacles in the street every time they, they, they uh, walked out in the street and every time they publicly appeared because of the immaculate care uh, that they lavished on clothes and fashion. They defined themselves by their fashion choices. They presented themselves as ostentatious spectacles for the early, for early Victorian British society in, within that society. And they, they had the means to do this because they were usually aristocrats, but unlike um, the aristocrats have always had, the British aristocracy always um, you know, promoted the idea that not only were they of noble, of noble birth, but they, they, they fulfilled a noble purpose in society. And Bo Brummel was an aristocrat who said, no, no, no. The only purpose of being an aristocrat is to, you know, basically be an aristocrat in style, basically to look good, basically to be a fashion model or a fashion exemplar. So, so, so and so he's the ultimate aristocrat. Now, for our purposes, I, I gave you a long historical information, but for the purposes of this example, it's really simple. Bo Brummel stands for not a subjugated person, but the ultimate aristocrat. And what is an, and his, his point, Baudrillard's point is that the masses are not subjugated. In fact, they inhabit the position. They feel like the ultimate aristocrat. What's an aristocrat really want? What do we really want if we're aristocratic? We want somebody else to do our work for us. So let me ask you a question here. Yeah. Is the contemporary version of this scenario, does this explain the media influencer? Right. I, I don't know. My head's stuck in my head's stuck in Instagram today. Right. But I'm wondering if this isn't the person who tells are. us. Of course they are. Bo Brummel is the. Uh... No, well, no, but no, we, Bo Brummel is the media. Bo, we well, no, I, we look, are Bo Brummel, but the media influencer is is the media in 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 Baudrillard's formulation, the person who relieves ourselves of the of the who who gives us freedom not to choose. Right. Who makes the choice? Who makes the choice for us? Thank you. Who who simultaneously defines this choice as the better Absolutely. one among others, and also helps to reinforce our own. That's brilliant, Desires. Michael. That's so, brilliant, Michael. The media is our valet. 
I'd, I'd like to thank Instagram for inspiring this yeah. podcast. The and media, the media is our valet in this uh, here. You know, along those lines of characterizations of the media, there was that sentence, the, the first sentence you've read is really fascinating. As you were reading it, it occurred to me, he's saying something very subversive in that first part of the sentence. Let me read it. It is much better to rely on some insignificant yep. or powerful instance than to be dependent on one's own will or the necessity of choice. So what is, that's a redefinition of the media. He redefines the media as both powerful and, and, and insignificant. insignificant. And the, the, the relation there I think is really significant, is really important. I don't wanna use the word significant, but it's very important because the argument is that the media upon which we rely, and again, media as plural, Correct. Right. Is is insignificant. It, it it is it is not something of substance. However, it is wildly powerful. Exactly it. And that in fact, Michael, did we not just land on? I, I, we saved our best for last. I think because I loved your observation that really the meaning, the significance of the Bo Brummel anecdote is that we are Bo Brummel. The masses are actually aristocrats and mm -hmm. the media is a valet. And really everything in this essay comes down to that argument that we, we that sentence that we were just talking about that really the core paradox is this media is powerful. It's all powerful. It's all encompassing and it's totally insignificant. Yeah. Cool. I, I think in, in, again, in, in terms of um, the thing that I guess the thing that I would tie this to, uh, to any of my students who are listening, this is ethos, right? This hmm. is incredibly powerful. This is incredibly strong. It will provoke a very real reaction, but in terms of actual substance behind it, it's not, it's, it's not rooted in anything firm. Right. Um, and that, that's, I think a, a good, uh, a good sort of characterization of how media works. So, um, you know, what's, what's nice about this is this is one of those, those times where, uh, our, our three, you know, points of focus uh, lined up quite nicely. I feel like this was um, uh, uh, maybe one of our more logical and organized podcasts. So Good just, to sort of, just to What's tie it together again, you know, <laughs> what what we're looking at here is is, is Baudrillard's really a sort of um, explication of a number of paradoxes, right? Based in the argument that what looks like media subservience is actually a freedom, and that we we enjoy this freedom freedom via three three points right so again that we our deepest desire is to be told what our desires is are excuse me uh that choice if we had it would ultimately lead to despair and that what we need rather than making those choices for ourselves is to have someone or something make those choices for us so barry with all this in mind what's mm -hmm. your takeaway how do you walk away from this I am trying, well, I don't have, a, I have a question that I'm going to linger with that mm -hmm. I'm going to try to answer uh, more than a specific takeaway. The thing I, I, I take from this essay that I'm going to ponder is this paradoxical notion of freedom, whether or not the cho choice not to choose, the choice not to do something ends up being might be the only 
exercise of freedom. In other words, I'm I'm trying I'm thinking whether it's possible to tie in Baudrillard's argument that we want to be freed from our desires. We don't want an agenda. We don't want to we don't want to exert our will. We want to be free from the exercise of will. I'm trying to connect that with non-compliance. I'm wondering whether or not the only revolt the only rebellion that might be possible at this moment is to simply our forms not a practical action but forms of disengagement that's the the big question i'm sort of wrestling with after reading this essay whether or not disengagement looks like you've refused to exert your will that looks like failure that looks like non-engagement but baudrillard seems to be suggesting that disengagement non-compliance, non-action is perhaps a, a, for, a powerful form of resistance or can be a powerful form of resistance. That's what I'm sort of taking away and pondering. I don't, I, I don't know whether this is true and that's why I'm pondering. Yeah, it's, it's an uncomfortable argument for me. Um, you know, when you run through this as we did, there is certainly a view that in, in which this holds. Um, I think ultimately I'm too much, I'm maybe just personally, I'm too rooted in the idea that our choices are significant and I'm too much of an optimist uh, who About believes- the possibilities of action? Uh, when who you believe, who believes in, yeah. in personal agency. Yeah. to really sign on to this. Uh, so I, I'm troubled because I see places where this does work. Um, mm -hmm. And so for me, this is this is uncomfortable because I want to believe, I, I, I am certainly a believer in the insignificance of much of the media that surrounds us. I am all too aware of the power of this media um, just in light of the past several years and the, the role that media has in shaping public opinion, there's an optimist in me that wants to believe that our resistance can take the form of something other than passivity. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's a problem mm -hmm. for me, but so is your, so is that your takeaway? That's my takeaway is that I don't like it, but I see places where it mm -hmm. works. So, uh, Michael, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to remind us and remind our listeners of something that is both powerful, unlike the media, something that's both powerful and significant, and that's our listeners. We've talked about this essay, um, and maybe you don't want to read the essay. Maybe you just want to talk about things we raise. Please do so. Engage us in the, uh, engage us in the uh, comment section. Let us know what you think about these arguments all right well barry i uh thank you as always this has been a uh, thought-provoking and enjoying a uh, joyable and um yeah i i uh i appreciate the conversation all right thanks michael take care take care barry bye, bye thanks for listening to the critical media studies podcast to find out more about the show check out our webpage at criticalmediastudiespodcast.com